it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kierkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer, in a very special edition of Beer as a Conversation. Today, David Cryer has announced that he is retiring from the business he started almost 30 years ago. And this is an unapologetically personal conversation with David. I don't know that there would be too many people in the brewing industry, especially those there in the modern craft industry's early stages, whose lives have not been touched and affected by David's involvement in the industry. And that very much goes for myself and also Brews News. David is a person who gave effect to the idea of what's good for the industry is good for my business and always supported the industry first. And it was always illustrative for me to watch the ways he supported the industry. This podcast is a very good example of that. David saw value in the conversations that we were having and encouraged us without ever needing to be convinced. And he has supported it since its very earliest days. I hope you'll forgive the indulgence of the occasional reminiscence in this conversation, but enjoy hearing back about David's career and thoughts on the industry as much as I did. This is my conversation with David Cryer. David Cryer, welcome to this very special edition of Beer is a Conversation. Thank you, Matt. Yes, uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Well, for the... um person who's most responsible uh, for this podcast even existing, you've only, this is only, I think, your second appearance on it in uh, over a decade. Yeah, I think a little goes a long way. <laughs> now, there is a very <laughs> special reason uh, why we are speaking to you, and uh, you, you've, you've uh, made an announcement today. I have, yes. I am uh, finally stepping away from my role as the head of Cryomalt, and uh, I'll be retiring the term I use on about the 12th of August, which um, is a very interesting feeling to have, having spent 30-something years so working in the industry with a lot of friends and then to be contemplating leaving is uh, an interesting interesting one for my mind to get through. What prompted that to happen now? I just think um, I've done a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm very pleased with where Cryer Malters. Um, I, I, I look at my family and got some you know, young people there, 17, 20 year olds, and I really want to make sure I'm around a bit more for them. And quite frankly, also just I think the last couple of years getting us through COVID, I think everyone could identify with this. I'm certainly not on my li- on, on my own here. Just running a business from a screen, it's um, it's 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 tough, and I'm just ready for a bit of a kick the feet up and uh, relax and um, as you particularly are aware Matt maybe look a bit more at my comic books and my collection <laughs> and just chill a bit and contemplate on life and um, who knows where I'll go from there we, we, we might come back to some of your other passions other than beer but how have you found the last you know two and a half years because you're somebody that as long as I've been involved in the craft brewing industry has been everywhere that craft beer has been. At any major event, um, you have been there personally flying the flag uh, for your business. Yeah, not being able to travel face-to-face, whether whether it's in your own business with your own people, that face-to-face is so important. And I, I certainly, I've really 
sort of fed on that energy I got from the uh, the craft brewers whenever I meet them when I'm out. It's, 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 it was infectious from day one. I, I, I can fully recall 30 years ago now, just um, you know, first time meeting some of these people in New Zealand like Richard Emerson and you just, you couldn't but feel excited to be around people like that who are highly creative. Um, and I still need that. It's sort of like, I always like and actually going to um, another place as CBC in America. You go there, it's like a giant sort of battery charging everyone up and all that being not there anymore, it's sort of, I think COVID became like a, like a, like an almost like a netherworld. You know, you just, you were, you were going through the steps slightly as you were doing what you were doing and you were trying to help good friends and, and you know, the industry survive along with you. So yeah, it was, it was a challenging time. And I'm very pleased that um, Crowbolt in particular, we, we navigated our well way through it. I think the industry's done pretty well to make it this far, but it's 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 a pretty challenging environment still. I'm just, I think we're going to see the back of COVID. Well, I'm pretty sure we are. Living in New Zealand, we're uh, lagging behind Australia a little bit. So I think Australia's out of it more quickly than we are. Well, it, it, it's certainly spreading. Um, you know, there, there's still people getting it, but it seems to we, we, we seem to have been a little bit more robust in our um, ability to cope with it. Yeah, and, you, and, you, and you, you've learned to live with it a bit faster than us. We, we, we're getting there, so I, I shouldn't complain. We are getting there. We have spoken to you about the origins of, of, of Cryo Malt in, in, in the past, but and I will be putting a link into our uh, earlier conversation. Um, but maybe for those who are just listening for the first time, uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to leave the wool industry and go into malt and craft beer. Yeah, well, I'd been in the, the wool industry for about 13 years. I, I trained at uh, Massey University in Palmerston North. I became a, a diploma in wool and wool technology is what I had. I was a I could go and class wool in people's sheds out on their farms. Um, and I went straight into, for me, it was a quick way to get into business. And I was able to start selling wool to all parts of the world, which gave me a, a good basis in logistics. And we used to go to open cry auctions, which were just hilarious. You know, you'd spend an afternoon or a day at a wool auction with 50 or 60 grown men, and you'd be bidding in the auction. And it was like you were with basically children. We were all sort of making noises to be heard by the auctioneer. It was a it was a really fun industry to be in, but unfortunately, um, not very profitable. <laughs> and then along came my. My cousin Fiona Warren from the she's from the Wire Airport in New Zealand. She married a guy, Peter Ellis, who at the time was um, the CEO of Murray Firth Maltings in, in the UK. And he approached me. They were owned by Scottish in Newcastle at that point, and said, "Look, I've seen that you know wool's not that great, and I know you love beer. Would you like to start importing a bit of malt?" And I said, "Yes," and it was just. It was a really quick decision. It sounded like quite fun. And it got to be even more fun when I discovered just sort of traipsing around New Zealand and meeting probably about 13 craft breweries at the time. There weren't very many. So what year was this, just to put it in context? We are talking about 1992 or so, around there. Because I started, it was called David Cryer Wolves Limited back in, it's incorporated in 91. And then we changed into malt it took about a two-year changeover period. But it became quickly apparent that there was, there was an opportunity there. As soon as I showed some of the New Zealand brewers 
some of the English malts I could bring in. They'd been wanting to get hold of this for a long time. So it was obviously a really good area to be involved in. I guess in hindsight you can say that, but what was the industry like then? You know, there were very few brewers. Um, if it was anything like Australia, we had a little bit of a flowering of the, the the craft beer industry around about then, but a lot of them petered out just as quickly. What what was what was your read of the industry at that stage? Well, I knew that as I've said, they were highly passionate individuals, and they were really focused in New Zealand in particular on making a really good quality product. And they knew to make these English styles of ales they tried when they travelled through the UK and and obviously gone into Europe and tried the, the European beers, that they needed to get the right ingredients. Because at the time, the malting company, as it was called, was owned by um, DB and Lion. And it was set up to make malt for them. And really looking after the craft brewers was not a focus. So that, that gave me a, a really good opportunity to come in at a, at, at a price level which was which was competitive but also to have a range of products which they just didn't have. So we really struck the market at a good time and um, sort of grew the business from there. And then not long after that, probably about, crikey, I'm thinking around 2000 or so, we um, picked up the rights to Wyman, and that really added to our range. So we had European, English, plus we also had the Australian malt in place then too. So we had quite a range, which uh, was what people were looking for. But just dropping back onto your point about it, it's a really interesting one is um, around Australia. Basically, they'd had a, a boom. And at the Pump House in Sydney, there was quite a few of them. There was a couple of big brewery over in Frio. A lot of these guys popped up. Chuck Hahn popped up around that time. But they were, they were big breweries trying to take on the macros at their own game a little bit. There mm. were some smaller ones there. But when the New Zealand evolution sort of took root probably 91, 92, 93. It was actually craft breweries as we know them now, smaller people, smaller batches, really more, and trying to make different types of products. So that was the difference. And then I saw that emerge in Australia. It would have been about, I reckon, 97 or so when I went over for the first AIBA award. It might have been the second. And there were a whole lot of quite small breweries just starting to get going. And that's when things really started to take root in Australia. And uh, here we are now all these years later, and it's a, it's a serious size industry, so it's fantastic. Yeah, You can certainly take uh, a certain amount of credit for driving that because in an industry that loves to say the riding, rising tide lifts all boats, there aren't many people who are looking for where the water's going to come from, and you've always been one of those um, that, that, that I've seen. What's What's, what's been your interest in developing the industry? Yeah, well, I've always seen, um, I, I think as suppliers, you know, obviously the health of the industry is really important to us. So for me, being able to join with the brewers, work with them pretty closely, and I was um, chairman of the New Zealand Brewers Guild for about four years, really enjoyed that, and just trying to make sure the industry was properly looked looked after, because I think before we developed Bevana, in New Zealand in particular, there were a lot of really what I regard quite average beer festivals where drinking was the main focus. Mm. Um, don't get me wrong, I've got nothing against drinking, but um, the way they drank and they, and really the image that came out of those was associated with the beginnings of craft beer. You, you just didn't want to be seen like that. 
So we felt at the Brewers Guild it was really important to develop something like a Beavana where it became about quality and tasting and in an environment that anyone, male or female, anyone at all, would feel comfortable coming along and trying. And I, I think we really did actually succeed because then not only did Beavana continue to grow, but it, it spawned other craft festivals, which I think uh, it's just fantastic. You know, when you go around Australasia now, the amount of choice you can get. And uh, they're really good quality festivals. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, over the course of my career that you've featured very prominently in, there are just a couple of very strong memories that, you know, uh, that, that I have where I've just had aha moments. And one of those was when you had bought uh, Bivana, um and it was still in the, uh, was it the old council building in, in yeah, Wellington? Yeah, we in the old, old town hall. Town hall, that's it. Beautiful old wooden building, and that was probably one of the riskiest decisions I made. I knew I wanted to grow it because another thing about me is I just I love a party, and the bigger the better. And so I identified the old stadium there in, in, in Wellington, Westpac Stadium, was mm. called at the time. Big concrete mausoleum, cold. A lot of people thought we were nuts going there, but um, I think over time, now that you go to the festival today, it's a great festival with great food, and the the beer is obviously a key focus, as it's called Bevana. <laughs> but it's really and it's it's expanded to a to a really good size. And I, and I think people like the buzz of it, but it was risky going from a beautiful old wooden building into this giant sort of concrete causeway. But it's really I think it's found its home, which I'm I'm very pleased about. But even when it was still at the old home, um, which was the first time I went, I remember speaking to you the day afterwards, and I think two patrons had been asked to leave um, out of you know a, a couple of thousand who who were in attendance there, and you you were quite anxious about that. And I said, well, it's two out of what three thousand, and your response was, well, it was a hundred percent increase on last year, and that that was something that I've, I've that's always stuck with me, just how how small numbers can have a huge impact on the perception of a business and uh, and particularly those sorts of festivals and the portrayal that it's seen as. If you do have, you know, one problem, it can completely overshadow what you're trying to achieve with a, a, a much, much larger event. Yeah, because at the time, that the police had a, a fairly dim view of, uh, of beer festivals. Mm. And I remember going along to they had some... Um, group meetings, which I flew down to Wellington for, we talked to the police and just explained to them what we were trying to do. And um, quickly they, they realised we were the people that, that they could work with. And so I, I was just anxious to make sure that, you know, we could not only talk the talk, but we could actually deliver. And so every time someone gets gets drunk and gets thrown out, it always used to upset me. But, but the great moderator in all of this was actually the, the attendees of the festival. I think early on they sort of they would frown at people who got drunk because they were potentially ruining it for everyone else. So that was a great way to control them. We didn't want to use any heavy-handed tactics. We introduced things like you know making it really clear this beer is our high alcohol. So we introduced what we call a traffic light system, which doesn't get used anymore because I think people are more um, au fait these days and they're more careful. But if you went to a tap that had a red label on it. It meant it was very high alcohol. Be careful. Mm. I remember a good friend attending the festival, and I saw him outside, and he was um, unfortunately a little intoxicated. 
you just said, look, mate, I just had no idea. You know, these beers you're serving, I just didn't know they were that strong. And this, this guy was an intelligent man. So I really took that on board and thought, how can we make it easier for the customer to understand? Because a good customer experience is what the whole industry is looking for. But it, it, it's interesting here you hear you say that it was the patrons that, that did that. But I'm a, I, I, I've watched the industry over a long period of time and I think it's the event organisers that have a really powerful opportunity to very subtly sing, signal what they expect from a festival and what they allow has a big impact on the way that consumers respond. And uh, again, one of the other moments I really remember was when you did move it to the stadium and you know, I was asking about the security and you'd made the point that, well, we don't, you know, I think you had the security system so you could monitor um, remotely through cameras, but you'd made the point that, you know, having a bunch of security guys on the floor actually injects a note of testosterone um, or, you know, that, that sort of slightly aggressive feel into a beer festival that resonates with, with punters as well. Yeah. I'm not sure if you remember that conversation as, as strongly as I, I do. do. No, 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 I do, I do. And um, I remember we had a particularly um, large security guard who we used to wheel through the festival just so people would see him because he was quite scary because of his size <laughs> and um, would send the, a right sort of message. But what I meant about the, the, the crowd is, yeah, it's really important that you set the tone of the festival as the organiser. That is absolutely critical. But then you harness the energy of the crowd because you're mm. attracting the right sort of people and, and they'll help you to keep setting that tone because you just cannot be everywhere. So I think if the event can become self-policing to some extent, it also really, really helps. And I think that, that helped me Ivana early on. And having a lot of the Wellington people and people used to travel from outside Wellington just to be part of the... We had a, a volunteer program. Um, Steph Coates was amazing. She... It's so much organising of that, and they, they really helped as well because they, they cared about the event. It was, it was a whole collegial growth of this, um, I'd say, important event, but more important than the event is the tone it set for the industry in New Zealand. And it actually, I think, helped in Australia slightly because I remember Steve and Steve Jefferson co coming over to the to Bevana and checking it out. And I think I was actually going to say that was when uh, that conversation took place. I was uh, touring with Steve and just keeping an eye on it mm. and just watching the things that he was watching and the things that he adopted in Gabs. Yeah, and he did a really good job over there with the entertainment, with all sorts of things, and it was it was so good to watch and just see this thing spreading in the proper way through through word of mouth. Or no, I was very very pleased with that. And at, at the end, we'd, we'd lost all these dumb festivals. The brewers soon realised, you know, okay, maybe you, you don't sell as much product, but you end up selling to the right people. And and that, that was a key thing for me as well, was that, you know, you'd sell beer at the event, but the thing we're all looking for is after the event, these brands had grown, they'd looked for them in the retailers and the supermarkets, so we could keep get the pull through coming out the back end of the event. I think that was very important. Do you think that's still the case? Because I increasingly hear that there are so many festivals and so many large festivals, and there are such demands on brewers to support their product in venues, you know, with beer dinners, and then you've got festivals and things. Increasingly, hearing brewers look at the financial return that they get and. Yeah. When you try and explain to a brewer that, well, the bigger the take at a festival tends to mean the more drunk people are leaving it and causing problems on the street that 
reinforces that negative perception about beer festivals? Well, they're just in so much demand because they're, you know, they were rock stars to us back in the day, but it was a very small group, and now it's a very large group. And just what amazed me, it must have been maybe seven or eight years ago when I was walking through Sydney and just seeing craft beer being used on blackboards everywhere. You know, you really knew that craft beer had come from something that a small group knew about. To really, it was, it was almost mainstream. Dare I use that word? And um, as a consequence, these guys are just in so much demand. But for me, when I was doing Beervana, it was critical for me to try and get the brewers there because that's who these um, lovers of craft beer really wanted to meet, the people who actually created the product. That, that's part of what I really enjoyed there, trying to create little um, sort of seminars which would be meaningful where, where one of these brewers could talk about what they were doing because... That's what I heard. You know, when I walked into a brewery in the early days, I'd, I'd hear them talking about what they're doing, and just the, the passion was so infectious. And I'd swear the beer was three times as good after you'd heard them talk about it. Mm. So. <laughs> How do you think the industry's gone? You know, again, I, I think we met probably seventeen years ago um, in the early days of Beer and Brewer magazine that I was editing, and uh, I think we met at Billy Bell's hotel. It may even have been. And it was still very, very early days. We were just starting to see the bridge roads and some of the, you know, now very well-established breweries, um, you know, coming on the scene. There was a lot of excitement about how craft beer was going to change the industry. Do you think that, you know, early promise has played out? Yeah, I do. But um, you look at the the larger brewers now are doing a very good job of, making these styles of beer, but look at the, the change, you know, you, you go into a bottle store, how many different types of IPA can you can buy right from a small producer through to large. So there's a little spot in there, probably not as not as big as I'd, I'd like it to be for the, the smaller brewers to get shelf space. But just the, the influence on the on the larger manufacturers, and obviously they've um, also pretty astutely bought growing craft breweries and they're harnessing them as well. So... I think um, quite a major change. Also, think um, when you look back across um, well, probably 150 years of of brewing, there there is a cycle of of opening up for craft, and also there's naturally a consolidation period, which which can happen. And, and it, you know, we'll only know with the benefit of time where we are in a consolidation period. It, it sort of feels that way slightly, where the bigger brewers are buying people up and. So the interesting times, looking back in five years, we'll know. But I'm, I'm also heartened, when I, when I look around Australia, there's still a lot of really innovative small brewers doing their thing. Looking like our wild, is it Wildflower? Wildflower in Sydney, yep. Yeah, really interesting stuff. And I just think there's lots of these people still coming along. There's, there's room for, for creativity, and creativity is the key. And for the industry to be healthy, it does need a creative craft brewing sector because it makes so much noise for its size. Mm. And that's why I think you know, craft is so important to large and also large is important to small. Um, so I think the two working closely is a key thing. And you know, as you, you and I have had this conversation, Matt, about in New Zealand for four years, I was chairman of the Brewers Guild. And my, my, my key thing that I... Which 
wanting to make happen was to make sure the industry stayed together. I think it really helped the New Zealand industry. You know, there are certain things that large and small brewers don't agree on. So as a chairman, I just used to we'd park those and then we'd focus on the stuff we agreed on. And that was things like Beavana. I We couldn't have got Beavana going without the help of the, of the larger brewers. And my deputy at the time was Simon Taylor from, from Lyon, a great guy. Mm. Really helped me to do it. And had you know, Martin Bennett there from uh, down in Christchurch. He was fantastic. The Twisted Hop. So, you know, really good crew of people. All very passionate. Which is interesting because the narrative of craft beer was a rebellion um, against the big brewers and um, that was one of the things that fired passions early on. But at the same time, running an industry association is a resource-intensive business to to do it as well. Um, And there are a lot of common interests between the big and the small brewers. Yeah, I remember uh, it was only Hanger Springs Brewery in Auckland you know, it, 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 sorry, the, the point is, it, it is a rebellion, I suppose, against more what your father drank, I think. Um, people wanted something different. But then you get people who can take it down a negative path, which is um, this only hung a spring brewery. They brought out a beer called, you know, No Chemicals. And it was just that sort of um, thing I didn't like because it was negative about beer, which really I think is my point being a bit long-winded here. Beer needs to really focus on it. It's, it's important to have good beer, whether it's large or small. Because mm. the competition comes from wine, and we're seeing seltzers, which is sort of good for the breweries at the moment because it's great income and a, a toughish time. But at the end of the day, on for beer. I've always loved beer, always will. I've brewed beer, home-brewed. Really enjoy the process, really enjoy the people. So that was always my focus, and I think, Yes, I think Lion and DB in New Zealand, they, they sort of, Lion in particular, welcomed the noise that craft brewery had in their rebellion as long as they didn't you know, make sort of negative comments about the larger breweries. I don't think that helps anyone. And by and large, I think the small brewers in New Zealand did, did really well. And to this day, I think um, the way Simon Taylor behaved on the Brewers Guild because he was a he was a really he was a quality guy. He would um, not let conflicts get in the way, and I think um, the fact that they were able to get Emerson's all those years ago was just a you know a nice look they gave to the craft market. They liked them, they liked the way they operated. And when you look at the success of Lion with um, Emerson's Little Creatures and our Stone and Wood, it's because I think they've got a more uh, holistic view of the market. I think they understand it. Mm. I just want to see the the next generation come through. I think that's the important thing. And it's been a, a difficult market in recent times. Yeah, and, and that's what I was going to say, you know, particularly as you're stepping away um, from the industry that you've done so much to pioneer. Um, we are seeing very much a generational change. Uh, you know, you, you can step in a room and there was a time when I would have known everybody and I know fewer than half the people in there. Yeah, and, and that's that's right. I, I just remember, you know, going to events would have been, oh, crikey, I've got to think back now. Maybe 20 years ago, you'd walk in and you would literally know every person in the room. Mm. And you'd meet new players coming in. It was great. You were able to interact them face-to-face. Now it's just, it's more challenging. 
not just take the COVID thing out, it's just the sheer volume of people. Mm. Really, really difficult. And so many young people who are reinvigorating the industry or or, um, invigorating the industry, I won't say. Yeah, and the the more that come in, the better. And they have all sorts of different ways. And I made that comment earlier about um, don't drink your dad's beer. I think we we sort of see that slightly in, uh, in craft when you look at something like Hazy's. It's really turned the industry on its head, you know, because when I started, you know, it was all about make sure the beer's uh, polished and it's really clean and crisp. Don't have any haze in there. Now let's get as much haze in there as possible. And I think that's just the whole idea of turning it on its head, which I think is brilliant because I, I, I do like those beers. I still like the old beers too, mm. but just another another option. So as long as they keep creating, keep that innovation coming, will be in good hands. And as I said, there are still a lot of small breweries coming through. I just want to maybe see more of uh, bigger breweries to replace the likes of, um, I suppose, Stone and Wood, Bolter, etc. And where will they come from? Because the narrative, as as those breweries sell out, is you know it, it's a it's a capital intensive business. The capital has to be paid for somehow. You know, early pioneers or starting up a brewery is very risky as well. How do you see those next generation of larger breweries? growing. Yeah, but a lot of these guys did start off as smaller breweries. I think um, probably Stone and Wood started off at a reasonable size down in Byron. But you, you can start out with a, a brewery bar. And I look at um, so Richard Watkins as, as an example where he, you know, obviously spent all those years at the Wigan Pen and really built himself up then moving Richard along with, um, I think it was Phil Mattings and co got involved. And they, they started off bent spoke, and it just has gone gangbusters. So you, you, I don't think you need to get it, doesn't have to be a risky jump that you go straight to large straight away because the potential for failure is um, is higher, right? Mm. I, think, I still think you've got to be patient. It's just like, like any, any business, you can't just jump in and take big risks. But I think as long as you make a quality product, I think people will find you. I think the industry's still the same about that. Everyone talks about you know, you know, what was the beer like at this place and everyone talks about it. And that word of mouth is the most important thing that gets a brewery going, in my opinion. Do you hold any fears for the industry? that you know, we, We've seen it growing. It it does feel like there's that consolidation going. Do you have any fears for, for the brewing industry or the small uh, brewing industry? My concern, which is sort of what I, I touched on earlier, is, just, is the fracturing of the industry. i, I really would like to see the larger brewers join up with the smaller brewers again Um, because all those years ago when Matt you and I were in Melbourne and there was that first meeting to talk about IBA and we had the decision you know at that stage the larger brewers were involved and since then the the choice has been made that no we don't want large brewers in here but I just every time I think about that all I do is, is think about someone like Chuck Hahn who Seriously, is one of the most passionate men I've met about beer, and he's done so much. And to not have him in there, I think, is a, a wee bit sad. And as suppliers, I just from you know the supplier side of things, not having everyone in the same room, it, it, it does make it more difficult because getting around all these events is, is, is quite tricky. But uh, I'd like to see consolidation of, of the industry together. That's what I've really enjoyed. I just, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I met Brad Rogers walking into the uh, Portland Hotel in Melbourne 
and walked in, and it was just the room was just full of people from CUB and Lion. And the tone of the event was highly positive. They were very positive people. And I just suddenly, it was the first time I'd realized that larger brewers, are, they're slightly different versions of smaller brewers. They're usually more technical, not always. But they've got a huge amount of passion. I've met many of those people over the years, and they're just they're great guys. And I think they really enjoy, really enjoy meeting the small brewers. And of course, as we've seen over the years now with um, CUB and Lion you know, releasing some of their brewers for you know, market forces have forced them to do that. These guys have found some great spots in about craft brewing. So we don't think both sides have seeded each other's growth. So I think it's a, it ended up being reasonably symbiotic. <laughs> so less fracturing, if we can possibly avoid it, would be my watchword. Mm. Particularly as well, you, you, these days, the, the, the big brewers are less and less genuine competition than some of the retailers, for example, who are increasingly bringing out home brand beers and then even the pub chains that, as we're seeing, are buying up uh, breweries to, to access the, the excise rebate. You're absolutely right, Matt, and that is the elephant in the room, quite literally, is the is the retailers. They have so much power over the industry. In Australia and New Zealand, we've got duopolies, maybe less so in Australia. But I'll never forget um, you know, Lion telling me a story all those years ago when they bought out it was a stone like a product, which was they really wanted it to be quality and responsible. And they went to great lengths to make sure that it wouldn't get on the market at the wrong price point. And I think day one, one of the supermarkets managed to get hold of a large amount of it and just started discounting it straight away. And they, they were really upset because they were trying to move the price points to where it should be and trying to send the right message to the consumer. And really, they've got this player who they have very little control over. You won't hear them talking about it too much. <laughs> it, it's really tricky to, to get the, 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 the supermarkets in New Zealand and the bottle stores more involved because they, they obviously they, they sell other products apart from beer. Mm. So, so we're really channeled on making sure that beer is seen as responsible because that's critical. Mm. Because this whole thing about alcohol safety is not going away. I'm actually very bearish about alcohol generally. I, I, I see it becoming increasingly looked at the same way that sugar and fat have been over the last uh, 20 years and unfortunately when you take the you know when you take the sugar out of soft drink you can still have soft drink or when you take the fat out of milk it's still milk but when you take the alcohol out of beer um, it becomes a different product entirely to some extent we're seeing a huge amount of growth aren't we in the mm. um, low alcohol beers and um, zero alcohol beers so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out i'm still a fan of the old uh, Five percent full flavored beer quality is the key, but I suppose that's the thing is I remember flying on a plane between I think it was the u k and America and um sitting next to a this very green person and I told them I was in the beer industry, and they just waxed on and on for about an hour about how healthy beer is because in its most natural form it is mm. a healthy ish product okay alcohol in moderation is something. It is. Yeah. It's a great, great servant, but a very poor master, as they say. I just do think beer does have that advantage. 
um, it's quite challenging to get young people to drink beer. They, they sort of prefer RTDs because there's such a big selection of products out there. It's and but I think I also think um, one of the more recent changes which I've enjoyed watching is the cans because I'm a as we talked about earlier, I love comics, I love visual art. I think the can has opened up the opportunity for a lot of a lot of quite creative people to do some very nice artwork on their cans, and I think that helps when you're in a supermarket about you're trying to pick a product. You can be enticed by the, the visual art of it, particularly because I collect comics. I've enjoyed um, Epic just recently has put out uh, a beer which has got Iron Man, one of my favourite comic characters on it. So of course I had to buy that one, didn't I? Had <laughs> <laughs> another one with the Incredible Hulk, which I had to buy as well. Luckily, the beer tastes good as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we, we, we've probably done a lot of uh, old man reminiscing. Let's uh, talk about what's next for David Cry because, uh, I mean, Cry Malt was acquired five years ago by Barrett Burston. Um, this isn't a five-year, the end of the five-year contracted period or anything like that that's seeing you uh, edge out? No, no, no. When I sold the business, um, I could pretty much leave at any point I wanted to. Um, I was enjoying what we were trying to do. Um, I think the thing we wanted to do all those years ago was um, we, we talked about to Barrett's quite a bit was was putting in this warehouse in Melbourne. And when we actually sold the business, that was one of the things that really got me going is the idea that we could put in a, a nice warehouse and do a lot of things which were customer focused. Because in North America, Country Malt, which is run, run by uh, Brian Bouchard, that's what they do, and they've, they've got a great model. And so the combination of we finally got the, the warehouse in, we've got the bagging line up and running, it, it just it just feels like a really good time for me to go, you know what, I think I'm going to leave it to other people and watch with satisfaction. I actually went to a friend's party just recently, and I made the mistake of um, telling one particular guy from the advertising industry, look, it's great, they've... They put up a warehouse in Melbourne that's got my name on it. <laughs> and then for the rest of the party, which went on for about four or five hours, he said, oh, have you met David? He's got a warehouse named after him. He just <laughs> absolutely made fun of me for that time. So, yeah. But no, I've um, stayed on for five years, which um, I'm pleased about. It has got my name on the door. and that, That's going to be really strange to, to, to step away from, I must admit. But the time is right. What have been some of the highlights for you um, over the course of your career? Highlights in terms of business, obviously a key element which I forget to mention as much as I should was um, marrying my wife, Claire, who a lot of guys from back in the day would remember very well. But um, up until I married her, the business had done pretty well. It had grown along with the market. But her getting involved meant that I could get out more, which I think was very good for the business, but she and I worked incredibly well together. So suddenly I could look at P&Ls and actually understand them because she explained them to me. <laughs> and I wasn't just eternally grizzling about why is it not better. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that was a real highlight for me. Um, getting Bevana going, huge highlight. Moving into Australia, that was amazing. Going to all those CBCs in America, I really, really enjoyed those. Had so much fun at those. 
many, 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 many highlights. I've really enjoyed it. How how will you spend your retirement? I know you've, you're an avid comic book collector, as uh, everyone remarks <laughs> upon. Uh, are you going to sit down and read them, or are, uh, are these all still uh, plastic wrapped and untouched, the way that a good comic book should be, and uh, an, an yeah. investment? I think I'm a, a repressed uh, museum curator. I can't <laughs> go into a bookshop without, if I find two books of the same book, I will take the book and put it next to the other book to make sure they know they've got two. Um, I'm going to do a lot of, a lot of cataloging, which I, I, I really like. I suppose it's, in a way, it's sort of when you're in the world of business, you know, you, you, you're working with risk. You're trying to um, take it down to the minimum. You know, our conversation earlier about, you know, where will these next um, large guys come from? Well, you know, you've got to analyze the risk and work out what's the, the safest way to get me there. And so, but with business, no matter what you do, everything you do, there's no such thing as no risk. And when you come to collectibles, they're tangible. You catalogue, there's an order to it. If you've got a slightly OCD sort of bent, which I think I've got a bit of, um, it's, I've, I've found it quite um, relaxing. <laughs> Not so relaxing for my wife when the collection became larger than life and really did start to <laughs> grow and grow and grow. So she had to put up with that. But, uh, yeah. So I think, yeah, I think I'll take in the next wee while, maybe a year or so, just um, chilling. And then who knows? I'm still too young to be – I do find it strange using the word retiring. Yes. Well, retiring from crime malt, not retiring from life. That's right. I'm very aware that um, you've got to keep yourself – Occupied, entertained, stimulated. So I, I want to make sure of that. I, um, my father, he hit a, hit a financial crisis back in about it was 1991, and he went into a period of stasis where he just sat and didn't do much. And I think you know, he, at the end, he he got Alzheimer's. And I do strongly believe that you know, it's, the brain is a muscle. You have to use, and he didn't use his, and I think that contributed to what happened to him. So I'm, that's in the back of my mind. So I just want to keep myself active. Do I need to go out and get a job and earn money? Um, I'm in a pretty more fortunate position than most, I suppose. Um, and perhaps there's something out there I can do which is um, less about money, but more what I can do for people, perhaps. I, I don't know. I, all the options are open. Claire and I might open another business doing something else. <laughs> you don't want to get into the publishing business by any chance, do you? I'm actually thinking about um, writing my own comic because my my uh, grandfather, he, he fought at the uh, Battle of Quenya, which is Q-U-E-S-N-O-Y for the, the geeks out there. And it was New Zealand's last action of the Great War. And it happened in a, a village in, in northern France. And... It was this beautiful old city, town, with um, these amazing fortified walls sort of in the form of a star built in about 1700. Anyway, they didn't want to shell the place, which is what they normally did in World War One. so the New Zealanders stormed it and uh, took the place without a single local losing their life. But they did lose 250 of their own men, which is quite sad. And my grandfather was there. And I grew up with all of this, and I've got photographs of him attending the 50-year celebration. Then I went back in the 100 years and 
with our Governor General, and it was a highly moving occasion. So I'm trying to work my way through. Could I actually draw, well, not me personally, get someone to draw a comic and tell a story about my grandfather and most those people who are very important New Zealanders? publishing it could be part of it you're right sorry you didn't expect to get that did you no i didn't but we've got a scoop and i'm i I know that there's a lot of creatives that listen so uh maybe we can flush some uh artists out of the woodwork please reach out now uh, that's uh you know my questions is there anything that you want to say after you know a, a, a very long career in beer i i just think really for me i just and my friends used to say this to me. They, you know, they they watch me at university because I, I did initially try to be a marine biologist. I thought I thought I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> and I, went, I went to Wellington and started a science degree. I soon discovered that um, I wanted the liquid on the inside, not the outside. So <laughs> beer was my game. But and then for years afterwards, I just remember them saying, "Well, you, know, you always seem to sort of want to work in places with agriculture because I'd been in the wool industry." You know, I've been in the, the malt industry, so it's something that's grown, barley. They didn't really understand. It wasn't until craft took off that uh, they suddenly realised I wasn't as silly as I looked. But I suppose from the minute I touched the beer industry, I knew that's where I wanted to be. Because I really would have to stretch my mind to really... If I got 10 people out of, I don't know, God, however I met 10,000, I've got no idea, but... Ten of them might be what you term, term bad eggs. They're just the beer industry is full of really good people, joined by the love of the uh, of the liquid. And I just felt, well, this is where I meant to be, and I stayed there for thirty years. So I think it proved it. I think I was very lucky. It's interesting that you say that, though, because we did talk about, you know, the movement against alcohol, and it seems to focus very much on, you know, when alcohol is the master, as you said, but it's 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 a it's a great servant, and sometimes I think the equation forgets the that, that when it is consumed responsibly, the communal the way it brings people together um, in positive ways, in ways that they may not come together without it. Um, is is often forgotten about, and and that's one of the the, the, the joys of the industry. Yeah, and I do like that because the lion, in particular, they 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 always talked about beer as a social occasion, and I think that's right. I, I, I do think they've got that right. But as you know, Matt, some of these um, craft beer things we used to talk about, you know, or things in moderation, but sometimes we would drink too much. That it, it, it does happen, and um, everyone needs to be on guard against it because as we've already said it can it can it can take your life over and um that that's that's something we all need to watch well david cryer thank you so much for, for for this conversation and but most importantly thank you for everything you've done you know bruce news really wouldn't exist uh w- without the support of uh you know you from the very very early days and this podcast certainly wouldn't and uh, i know that there are a lot of people in the industry who feel very much the same so um you know Thank you so much for all you've done. And I was honoured to be able to uh, present the Lifetime Achievement Award to you at, at the Indies last year. And it, it was such a joyful experience hearing all of the reminiscences about the David Cryer stories. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. But when I, when I met you, I knew you were the right guy. We needed someone to write about us. And you took the bait and ran with it, or whatever the term is, and you've done a great job. 
into the industry. You know, God, you know, not just one person, but man, what a great industry. And they they welcomed me. So I've, I've felt very at home for a long time and um, I'll miss it, but I'm not gone. No, well, and I'm looking forward to having a beer with you that we can uh, talk about other things, maybe comic books. Sounds like a good thing. A good beer and a good comic, what can go wrong? <laughs> David Cryer, <laughs> thank you very much and uh, all the very best. Thank you, Matt. And that was David Cryer. And I know that our listeners will join me in wishing David every blessing in his retirement and getting that comic book collection indexed. <laughs>